So my mom was listening to the most recent episode. Yeah. I believe it's the most recent. Not not today's, last week's. Hold on. No, oh, it was um Bavaria. No, Austria. So thirty. That's week before last week, right? I could tell you, but I closed my window <laughs> or my window. Yeah, my internet. Anyway, um, she's listening to the episode with the angels of death. Oh yeah, Austria. And she said, the reason that uh, they would use insulin and morphine together is um, that she's heard from other stories is that it's really gross. Um, they could use one and then the other to bring them closer and then further from death. So like playing with them basically. Okay, so that just goes right along with the um, winning the God complex. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I was just. Um, Thanks, mom. I remember we, I remembered we were wondering about uh, about why, why they, they would yeah using like all three would of be them using insulin yeah, but now that makes it, sense it, unfortunately unfortunately because it gives them like that spike of like that sugar spike to get them back up and running. So I, mean, I have no idea. I'm not even gonna pretend to know how it works. Well, my grandma has insulin, so. I, no, I know how insulin little, works. I, I just don't work. know how it works. I know how that works. I just don't know how it works in relation to morphine. Valid. Valid. Have you seen, of course you haven't, um, there's a theory, there's a picture of John JonBenet Ramsey that's been going around on the internet the past couple of days that has, um, I don't even know how to say this woman's name, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's, uh, co-conspirator lady. Jocelyn Maxwell, I think that's how you say it. I unfortunately did not keep up with the Jeffrey Epstein. I should have, but... Well, there was a woman um, that was supposedly helping bring women into this whole, like, sex trafficking operation thing that they had going on, mm-hmm. and she's been arrested. Oh, and that's good. But she's in the same jail that Jeffrey Epstein was in when he killed himself. Kill quote. You know? In quotation marks, killed himself. I, I did see that and on Facebook, so now it's jogging a memory. Yeah. But, so people are, you know, making all those jokes where they're like, oh man, it's really sad that she killed herself next week. Next week? Next week. Um, or, yeah. And then it was confirmed that she has coronavirus. Yes. I feel like a science experiment was done. Just saying. No. I think that... No, I'm not going to say that. (laughs) Karma's a bitch. Well, no. I'm saying... Because, you know, there's the whole conspiracy about Jeffrey Epstein's death and whether or not he actually killed himself. Yeah. 
so people are saying that they're lying and saying that she has coronavirus and that they're going to kill her and then make it look like it. Well, people are saying that if you die of literally anything right now, they're saying you're dying of COVID, so. Oh, that, I don't think so, because I don't my, think so either, but that's just what people are saying. Because one of my great uncles died last week, and he died of something completely unrelated. Yeah. So, well, holy shit. Yep, that was here. It is pouring. Oof, the goats cool. are still out. I can't hear it. I would show you, but I would literally drop everything on my desk. That's fine. It'll probably start here soon. If it hasn't already. Probably. Oh. There you go. It's there now. <laughs> you cursed yourself. Oh. You know what? My Bluetooth is on on my phone. Oh, well, so anyway, the reason that I started talking about the whole Jeffrey Epstein, um, that lady, yes, because there is a picture of John Benet Ramsey going around where there's a woman in the picture that you only see, like, part, like, the side of her face. You don't see her whole, whole face, face. yeah. But she looks really similar to this lady. Oh, And at first I'm like, that's kind of silly. I don't see the connection there. But John Benet Ramsey's father and that lady had the same lawyers. So there's at least some connection Connection, there. Wow. I'm moving. Which is pretty fucked up. And I mean, there could, I mean, there could be absolutely no correlation whatsoever. I just thought that was interesting, and we have a true crime paranormal podcast, so I figured I should bring that up. We do need to cover the uh, Jean Benet Ramsey case, so. I've been thinking about it. I just, I try to avoid big ones that everybody have, has done, except for, like, a, a few. I was going to say, look, that, like, we've covered big I ones. <laughs> we covered H.H. H. Holmes. Yes, but we've also done, like, not very well-known ones, too. So, I just... Oof. Oof. Um, well, yeah, welcome back. You know us. I'm I'm Grace. I, that's Rachel. I'm Rachel. That's Grace. And our co-host today is the wonderful Thunder outside. It's just gonna yeah. chime in every once in a while. I enjoy it. Yeah. It gives us a nice ambiance, you know? Where we be at today... Oh, no, I didn't write the history. I'm just kidding. I did. (laughs) After last time. I'm not doing that again. Um, We've both done it. (laughs) Yeah. We're in Toronto, Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Toronto, Canada. My sources are blog2.com, toronto.ca, and Wikipedia. Ooh. Toronto is the capital of Ontario, Canada. The name Toronto is derived from a Mohawk word, Toronto, which means where there are trees standing in the water. Oh, we got plenty of those yeah. in our pond. <laughs> when Europeans began settling there in the 17th century, the indigenous people on the land were Mississaugas, who had settled on the Credit River. There had been earlier settlements in this in southern Ontario by Wendat people and other Iroquoians. The increasing European presence coincided with um, 
and the escalation of warfare among the indigenous people. Uh, at the same time, some native groups, especially the Hurons, received Roman Catholic missionaries among them. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to push their religion, and um, it basically began to undermine not only the beliefs, but also the social structures of the tribe's people, and generated a lot of division within the communities. Yep. It's still between, happening today. Yeah. Between 1634 and 1640, half of the Aboriginal population of southern Ontario and in other areas in the Great Lakes perished from the shit ton of new diseases that uh, European people brought with them. Mm-hmm. 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 The land was purchased from the Mississaugas by the British Crown in a deal later known as the Toronto Purchase in 18, er, 1787. Like um, other land purchases, it wasn't a good deal for the indigenous peoples who, because they believed that it was an agreement for a lease mm. of the land, yeah, not outright purchase. The agreement was revisited in 1805 intended to clarify the area purchased. Um, but the agreement remained in dispute for over 200 years until 2010 when a settlement for the land was made between the government of Canada and the Mississaugas for the land and other lands in the area. The Mississauga were paid $145 million. Oh, good. In that settlement. Good. I mean, they deserve way way more, but... Yeah. Yeah. Today, the Mississaugas of New Credit live next to the Six Nations of Grand River near Brantford. After the Toronto Purchase, the British established the town of York in 1793 and later designated it as the capital of Upper Canada. York was renamed and incorporated in 1834 as the city of Toronto. It was designated as the capital of the province of Toronto, of Toronto, of Ontario in 1867 during the Canadian Confederation. Toronto was. Oof. Holy shit. I felt that. I can feel that through my ears. Wow. So, skipping forward a bit, Toronto was uh, deeply affected by the Great Depression, but was slowly able to rebuild the economy. The Second World War wasn't great for their economy either, but they recovered from that too. However, uh, federal immigration laws discriminated against different peoples for decades. It wasn't until 1950 that the government allowed citizens of Germany and Italy to immigrate to to Canada. to Canada again. And there were restrictions against uh, visible minorities and newcomers from, like, third world countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they didn't begin to be dismantled, like, until the 1960s. Yeah. So, today, Toronto is extremely diverse, with more than 50% of residents belonging to a visible minority group. And while the majority of people in Toronto speak English as their primary language, over 160 languages are spoken in the city. That's a lot. More than here. I don't know. I don't don't think so. I mean, do you mean like Louisville or I mean Louisville. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I don't even remember our first episode. (laughs) We even talked about it. We did not. So Toronto is a prominent center center for music, uh, theater, movie, and TV 
TVD. TVD. Talk today. Uh, they record a lot of episodes of Supernatural there. Yes, it's um, they've got a lot of movie and TV production, and it's home to the headquarters of Canada's major national broadcast networks and media outlets. Mm-hmm. There are um, a lot of cultural institutions that include numerous museums and galleries, festivals, public events. There are also entertainment districts, uh, national historic sites, and sports activities, and they attract over 43 million tourists each year. Obviously not this year. Anyone um, interested in the history of Toronto should download this app called the First Story app. It's um, basically the goal of the app is to build uh, pride and awareness of the like long indigenous presence in the city, as Ooh. well as contribu- contributions of indigenous peoples to the development of Toronto. That is not where I thought you were going with that sentence, and. <laughs> I'm pleasantly surprised. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, it like if you're if you're in Toronto, you can download it and it it can like you can walk around the city, and it'll point out all these different places that are like historically significant. Um, they'll let you know really cool things. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Cool. And uh, that's my history. Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm so tired. Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, so I guess my turn. So what's your story on today? Naughty Vines. No. (laughs) (laughs) My story today is that of the 2010 to 2017 Toronto serial homicides. Oh. My sources are Wikipedia, BuzzFeedNews.com, TorontoSun.com, CNN.com, TheGuardian.com, VanityFair.com, CBC.ca, and BBC.com. And not gonna lie, Wikipedia is where I got most of my information. (laughs) So, when I first started reading about the serial homicides and the killer, I was like, this sounds super familiar. So, I kept racking my brain about which podcast I had heard it on, but finally it clicked. This was episode 142 of And That's Why We Drink. Oh. So, when you hear it, it will sound vaguely familiar to you. I, maybe. Maybe. Uh, Honestly, it might not. I zone out so much when I'm listening to podcasts. Valid. Um... But to those who have not listened to that episode, then you will know of no spoilers, and this will be a great episode for you. Alrighty. Um, As if my intro didn't tell you exactly what it is. In 2010, many, many men began disappearing in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Early on... Oh, I know which one it is. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. No. Wait, I I don't. I'm just playing. (laughs) Early on, when authorities realized that this wasn't just your average bar fight kind of killings or disappearances or, you know, whatever they deem as a normal murder disappearance, um, whatever. But early on, the Toronto Police Service created Project Houston and Project Prism, which I'm going, I spelled deal tail instead of detail. Uh, deal tail? <laughs> deal tail. That's um, a new one. Yep. 
which I'm going to go into detail about a little bit later on. But these two task force, spoiler alert, ultimately led to the arrest of 66-year-old landscaper Bruce McArthur. Nope, not ringing a bell. (laughs) Okay, hopefully it will when we get a little closer to it. Thomas Donald Bruce Mitharker. Mitharker. (laughs) That should be a name. Uh, It's like you're trying to say motherfucker, (laughs) you just haven't quite gotten there yet. (laughs) Missing a few letters. Um, Okay, Thomas Donald Bruce McArthur was born on October 8th, 1951 in Lindsay, Ontario, which is about 60 kilometers. Is that right? Kilometers? Because last time I said kilometers. So, okay. Yeah. 60 kilometers north of Oshawa. In addition to he and his sisters, her parent, Her. I mean, he could identify as her. We don't know their life. We don't. No, there actually was not a whole lot of detail about his life. Uh, his parents would apparently foster troubled children from Toronto with often six to ten in their care at any given time. Shit, that's a lot of kids. So, yeah, huge family and also a bunch of kids going in and out. Mm. While they were very caring parents with a lot of love to give, the two parents would often argue over religious beliefs. His mother... That seems... Like, why get married to somebody if you have extremely... If you have extremely heavy religious beliefs and you know that they have extremely heavy religious beliefs, that just... It can work. It could work. It definitely could. But if you're trying to impose... Yeah. ...that religion on to the other person, that's where there's a disconnect. And I don't get that. Or even, you know, on to your children. Because you have to to realize that your partner wants them, the children, to have some of their beliefs, too. You know, right. so they either get a mixed version of it or you let what, or, or you let them, them choose or you just let them choose. Yeah, that's always been my strongest, strongest, strongest yeah. feeling is let your kids choose what they want their religious Absolutely. belief Considering to be. I'm definitely not religious. That's the best way to go. I am spiritual. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. I think. I'd but love, I love I'd me love some me. Christmas. I just... <laughs> His mother was an Irish Catholic. And his father, a Scottish Presbyterian. Got so, it. So, Catholic, okay, Presbyterian. Okay, soon. Understand it now. Yeah. Catholic and Presbyterian, I mean, they're pretty far apart already. But add in the Irish and the Scottish, which are, like, super, like, mm. you all can't see me, but I'm enunciating this, the size with my hands. Gesticulating. <laughs> yes. I said enunciating. Yeah. That's, nope. Wrong word. Enunciating. <laughs> That's okay. Is that a word? That's not a word. Enunciating. It should be a word. (laughs) It should. We're going to make it a word. Copy right here. It's Um, the mixture of enunciating and gesticulating. Yes. Yes. Okay. MacArthur, you know, the son, Thomas Donald, Bruce, whatever, would often side with his mother, which would lead to ridicule from his father. During his secondary Mm. education, which... We don't really call it secondary anymore. Is that middle high school or just high school? Yeah. I think it's high school. Based on the sentence, it has to be high school. (laughs) I think it's different in different areas. Well, whatever. During secondary secondary education, he was a teenager, blah, blah, blah. 
He met and began dating Janice Campbell and later married her at 23 years old. So, around 1973, MacArthur began working at Eaton's department stores as a buyer's assistant. A few blocks north of the building that he was working in was, you know, an up-and-coming gay village. Which... A gay village? A gay village! I love that Tell they're called gay villages. Tell me more about this gay village. Well, look. <laughs> this is not the one we're going to talk talk about, but oh. um, this particular gay village was on Yong? Yong? <laughs> I assume Yong Street. That's the way it's spelled. Uh, between College and Wellesley Streets. Also, I assume that's how you say it. Around the mid-70s, Mick Arthur's father was diagnosed with a brain tumor and had to be placed in a nursing home because this is something, obviously, that's very difficult to deal with outside of a medical facility. Shortly after this, his mother apparently became interested in another man, which really disappointed Mick Arthur. Because of this, he now felt he had a closer connection to his father. Wait, hold on. So, they were still married. They were still married. Dad was oh. in a nursing home. Oh. Mom starts fling with other guy. You know, I get it. I I understand why he would now feel closer to his father because he be, he feels betrayed by his mother. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, I get that. Uh, like, that's such a hard situation to be in. It is. I, I understand, though. Yeah, so I I can, I can't sympathize. I can empathize. That's the word. Um, his mother passed away from cancer in 1978 mm-hmm. and his father in 1981. Oh, God, he would have been our age when he lost his mom. Oh, that's sad. I couldn't do that. No. No, no. Um... In 1979, MacArthur and his wife moved into a house in Oshawa. Their family then grew in 1981 with the addition of a daughter named Melanie and a son named Todd. By 1986, MacArthur became very active in the local church. And this is speculation here, but he was trying to keep himself busy to avoid admitting his homosexual feelings. Mm. However, in 1989, he did come out to his wife, but they continued to live together. Then in 1990, he began having affairs. So, you're disappointed in your mom for it, but you can do it. Sure, whatever. That's a man's prerogative, Rachel. Yes, a man's prerogative. At this point, um, honestly, I question if his wife knew because it said that they lived together. But surely she had to know because those... Well, did it say that they continued living together? Did they, like, separate, though? They did not separate. Um, They did not separate until several years later, actually. Hmm. So, they were still together, they still lived together, they still had canoodles as a family, I don't know. Um, Canoodles. Canoodles. (laughs) But he started having affairs. 
Mm. And logically, I mean, look, if I'm married one day and my husband comes out to me like, hey, I'm gay. I'm so sorry. How long have you felt this way? We need to, we need to handle this because your feelings are important. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's really hard to be closeted for such a long time. Yeah. I, like, I get that, but I, I feel like... And I could have completely read the article wrong and that they had separated, but then it came up later that they went their separate ways. That's the only reason I'm like, mm. they did not separate. And which is why so I'm like... they might have separated because of all of this later? I mean... There's other things. There's other things. I will move okay. on. Um, in 1993, MacArthur lost his job in the clothing industry, and the family started to face financial difficulties due to lack of work, but also due to legal issues regarding the son. Mm. He was apparently making really obscene oh. phone calls to women that he didn't know. Ew. Just ew. Just ew. <laughs> Just ew. Yes. <laughs> That's my only response is ew. No one wants those phone calls. Don't make those phone calls. Absolutely no one wants those phone calls. And if they do, they will find somebody else. Right. It would be with a partner or an, someone they're interested in. Or some sort of paid service. Whatever they want. Not Just... necessarily complete stranger. <laughs> right. Okay. In 1997... The couple finally went their separate ways. This is why I said that. Mm -hmm. And MacArthur moved to Toronto as there was no real gay community in Oshawa. He began frequenting the bars of Church and Wellesley at this point. And again, this is Toronto's gay village. He was pursuing... That's what they said, pursuing... A four-year relationship with another man. Oof. That makes it sound like... That makes it sound like... Hello, my dear sir. I would like to engage in a four-year relationship with you. Sign and date here at the bottom if you agree to these terms. And please don't forget to notarize where necessary. Exactly. Yes. But no, he was pursuing a four-year relationship with a man that I guess he met as soon as he lost his job, but whatever. But that inevitably led to separation as well. After this and his divorce finalizing, Mick Arthur decided it was time to see a psychiatrist. And he was... That's pres- always good. Yeah, he, he was prescribed Prozac. And during this time, he also began to pursue a job as a landscaper. Okay. Feeling a little lonely, he began going online into chat lines in attempts to meet people. He met a male sex worker and later met to have sex with him. Mm-hmm. Um, it must have gone well because on October 31st, 2001, the man invited Big Arthur to his apartment in order to see his Halloween costume. Oh, okay. However, when he got there, he struck the man several times in the back of the head with an iron pipe that he apparently often carried with him. I'm sorry. So so much to unpack there. A, he offered this, he 
he got this person to come to his home. Once inside, he hit him in the back of the head with a no, lead no, no, pipe. No. MacArthur went to the sex worker's home. Oh, he went to his home. He went to his home. Because the sex worker wanted to show his Halloween costume. Okay. I thought it was the other way around. Yeah, no, sorry. I should have okay. worded that better. No, MacArthur went to the sex worker's home and then hit him with the iron pipe. Which, to me, red flag, why is this guy carrying in an iron pipe to your front door? I would not let them in if I knew them. If I... Unless I literally knew them and they were just, you know, they weren't just, uh sex thing I unless I knew why they were bringing it anyway I don't know I feel like at that point if he was coming over to see his Halloween costume it's likely that they developed a rapport and that it wasn't a big thing and they just thought he was a little quirky but also who carries around a fucking lead pipe Right. What is like, this clue? Like, okay, a, having a tire iron, a tire iron in the car is realistic, but an iron yeah. pipe? No. An iron pipe. An Where iron. did he even get? Right. I know we are focusing on the wrong thing here, but we are definitely focusing <laughs> on the wrong thing. I just like iron pipe. Also, why did he do that? Um, the man lost consciousness, but then called then called nine one one when he woke up, or whatever the equivalent of. Oh, so he was fine. He was fine. He was fine. He okay. lost consciousness. Um, MacArthur ran away, but he was fine after he woke up. He called nine one one. He did suffer some injuries to his head and body, and needed several stitches to the the back of his head and his fingers as well as six weeks of physiotherapy jesus um i should not have worded the sentence this way so i'm going to admit part of this um macarthur i guess felt extremely guilty because he turned himself in after the attack okay he claimed that he could not remember the incident mm. or why he might have done it. And he pled guilty to the charges of assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm. This is so specific. He was sentenced to 729 days in prison on April 11th, 2003. That is very specific. Very specific. It was originally believed that the jail time was warranted. However, the judge agreed to a conditional sentence after a psychiatric and presenting reports suggested that he would not be a repeat offender. Oh, well, I guess they got that wrong. There were concerns that MacArthur's unexplained behavior was due to the combination of the Prozac and amyl nitrate. Poppers is what uh, it's called, which is I'm a, sorry. He go keep he going. mixed Prozac and poppers. Uh, the reason he took poppers is because it's a muck, muckle <laughs> because it is a muscle relaxer that is sometimes taken recreationally before sex. Makes it a little easier, I guess. 
So <laughs> your <they> face. Probably, <laughs> so they probably assumed that it was just a sex thing, and that he, those the those two mixing. That the, yeah, that the two drugs did not mix, and that's what they assumed it was. Mm. Okay. Um, MacArthur f- spent his first year of his sentence under house arrest, followed by a six-month curfew and three years of probation. Thankfully, he was barred from church in Wellesley during his sentence, except for work and medical appointments. He had to stay at least 10 meters from the victim's house or workplace, which is, for us Americans, 33 feet. And he could not spend time with male prostitutes. Um, he was also, okay. f- yeah, he was also forbidden to possess firearms for 10 years. Thank you for that. I super appreciate that ruling, but whatever. Um, he was not per- permitted to purchase, possess, or consume drugs without a medical prescription, and specifically not poppers. Okay, did they regularly drug test him? I don't know. It didn't say. He was required to submit his DNA to a database and had had to undergo psychological and psychiatric counseling, including anger management. Good. Yes. However, these parole conditions were apparently really not enforceable. Yeah, some of them really don't sound like they are enforceable at all. Uh-uh. That's why I was making uh-uh. all those faces. Uh-uh. I was like, uh, okay. Yep. And in 2014, MacArthur was granted a record suspension, which expunged this from his record no. entirely. That's yep. bullshit. Yeah. So, in 2000... Well, you know, if he hadn't reoffended, it might have not been bullshit. Like, if, right. if it had been the two. However... Right, like ugh. the only hindsight's twenty twenty. So the only thing that they could find to prove any of this was the notes from the stenographer at the hearing. That's the only thing they could find. Everything else was, like I said, expunged. Just it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um. So in two thousand and two, with the assault case still in court, MacArthur registered with Recon Silver Daddies Man Jam. Grinder, Bear 411, Bear Forest, Scruff, Daddy Hunt, Squirt, and Growler. <laughs> there are so many. So many. If you can't tell by the names of some of these sites he joined, he was into BDSM and was looking for submissive men. Mm. In 2001, we're backtracking just a half step. He joined Facebook, where he would post pictures of his nightlife with pictures of parties, vacations, birthday dinners, and concerts. All of which sounds totally Totally normal. Totally normal, yeah. Many of the pictures, this is gonna come, this this is gonna rear its head later. Many of the pictures featured younger men of South Asian or Middle Eastern descent. So he had a type. He had a type. Um, at this point, he made, obviously, he's made his role in the gay community. So he's, like, pretty prominent. He's all out there on all of the websites. 
Yada yada. However, he was still banned from church in Willisley. But, again, he had developed a reputation for BDSM and rough sex. So BDSM yep. and rough sex in and of itself, not a big deal. Oh, no, However, not at all. With this guy, I can already see a pattern, and I don't like it. Yes. In 2011, he told an acquaintance about an incident in which he had been asked to leave a coffee house. Would you think, okay, you gotta leave a coffee house, what's wrong? But he responded to that request by knocking all of the glasses off of the counter in rage. Oh, God. What a Karen. Yep. Upon telling his friend, his friend, acquaintance, this, the acquaintance decided he was going to stay away from MacArthur from now on. Understandable. Which brought about another bout of rage. Cool. Major anger issues. Um, yep. By this time, MacArthur had become a self-employed landscaper operating under the name artistic designs he had been described as more of a gardener by yeah by someone who did the water features in one of his yards Mm -hmm. he was usually accompanied by an older white male who to this person said appeared to be romantically involved with him and a day laborer who was usually of Southeast Asian or Middle Eastern descent. Okay. During the really random but also horrible fact at the end, um, during the off-season, he portrayed Santa in the local mall. Oof. Oof, yeah. If we can't already tell... MacArthur seemed to have a thing for men of Southeast Asian and Middle Eastern descent. Picking up on that. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. This became very evident to his family and peers when his son's friend came to visit his Toronto apartment and found the bathroom decorated with photos of naked men with erections. (gasps) All of whom appearing to be East Asian or Middle Eastern. He had a shrine? He had, not a shrine, the entire bathroom. Yeah, that's a shrine. I don't know about anyone else, but I do not want my shrine to be in the bathroom. (laughs) But sure, he had a shrine. That's entirely, what? Yeah, yeah. First of all, that he even had that. Secondly, that yeah. he didn't take it down when he had people over. Yeah. Oh, no. He was very proud about it and just kind of laughed it off when he was asked. <laughs> a little. It's, this is a little odd. <laughs> okay. Mo- moving on from the naked men with erections. Moving on to the investigations. Project Houston began in November of 2012 and was initially looking into the September 6, 2010 disappearance of Skandaraj Navaratnam. Uh, Two years later, they deemed his disappearance a murder, but no body was found. 
In June of 2013, the task force identified two other missing persons persons linked by geography and lifestyle. Abdul Bazir Faizi and Majid Kaihan. Um, yeah. Project Houston then narrowed down the origin of the disappearances to church in Wellesley. But I thought he was banned. He was. Go figure. Um, because MacArthur knew both the men, he was, well, two of the men, not both the men, two of the men, he was initially questioned. He claimed that he regularly interacted with Navarat Nam, but did not have a relationship with him. Okay. He then claimed that Kaiham had been employed by him and that he had broken off a sexual relationship. Mm. The task force was unable to pin this on MacArthur and were unable to initially determine if the disappearances were related or if a crime had even been committed. Because for all they know, these men just disappeared. They could have gone to Norway for all they know. In June of 2017, Andrew Kinsman, who was an openly gay bartender who, coincidentally, had very deep roots in the gay community, went missing. Because of these deep roots, this this did not go unnoticed. Yeah, like the other two, it seems, weren't as well known. The other three. Three. Yeah. But somebody who's very prominent in the community. Yeah, exactly. A friend of Kinsman founded and moderated two Facebook groups, Find Andrew Kinsman and Toronto's Missing Rainbow Community. The groups shared information about the missing men and organized volunteers for search parties. One other missing man was identified to have disappeared within the gay community at this time, and it was Salim Essen who disappeared on April 14th, 2017. Then, around July 2017, after a after public speculation that there was a serial killer in church yeah. and Wellesley, like, no shit, it was discovered that another missing person case could be linked to this village. At this point, the police created the second task force called Project Prism. I think it's interesting how every time something happens, it's like, it seems like police aren't really working on it until the public is like, hey, what the fuck? Right. Look, one of the big issues with this is that before Andrew Kinsman, these were really all men of color. And yeah, I was going to ask that earlier if he yeah. was white. Andrew Kinsman is white. Yeah, and that's the first person that they genuinely pay attention to. Yes. That's kind of shit. Yes. It was a huge problem. It was a huge problem that the police kind of disregarded this also at first because it was a bunch of gay men. Right. This This whole thing brought up a whole bunch of controversy in, like, after the fact. Okay, so Project Prism was a task force that was specifically designed to investigate the, the disappearances of Kinsman and Essen. 
So at least on this, they included a man of color in this Project Prism. They made a connection between the two because neither of them were likely to go out without telling friends or family where they were going. In fact, a crucial piece of evidence was found in Kinsman's apartment that led to the culprit in the disappearances. Because Kinsman was reported within 72 hours of his disappearance, this evidence could have been lost without knowing the exact time frame that he disappeared. Mm. Apparently, police found the name Bruce listed on Kinsman's calendar for June 26. Mm. And that was the last day that Kinsman had been seen. Surveillance video from outside the residence showed Kinsman approaching a red vehicle. No license plate or clear picture of the driver was, you know, visible from the video. Yeah. However, they were able to identify the vehicle as a 2004 Dodge Caravan. While there were 6,000 similar models in Toronto, only five were registered to someone named Bruce. Of those five, the only 2004 belonged to Bruce McArthur. They put a warrant out on the vehicle and set surveillance on McArthur's old apartment, as well as businesses he was known to frequent. And on October 3rd, which was quite a while after Kinsman's disappearance, officers arrived at Dom's Auto Parts in Cortice, Ontario, and towed away McArthur's car. Ha ha ha. Ooh. Later on, they said... <laughs> Jesus, this is horrible. Later on, they said that they found trace amounts of blood, which was identified as belonging to Kinsmen. Oh. Damn. With this evidence, cadaver dogs were brought to a residence in the Lee Side neighborhood of Toronto. MacArthur apparently had an agreement with the property owner where if he kept up the yard work on the property, then he could store his landscaping equipment in the garage. Oh, shit. The dogs did not indicate that there were any human remains on the property, Hmm. but nonetheless, a camera was installed in the garage to monitor just in case. They then obtained a log of MacArthur's key fob for his apartment and a tracking warrant for his cell phone, and were able to build a timeline of the day that Kinsman went missing. So, on top of the DNA evidence that matched Kinsman, other DNA evidence that was found in the van matched Essen. So, this allowed investigators to obtain a warrant into MacArthur's apartment. One day, the police entered said apartment, while Kinsman was not there and copied his computer hard drive. And on September 17th, 2018, evidence was found that directly connected MacArthur to the two men. A partial download of the files on his computer were being processed through forensic analysis when the deleted photos revealed (gasps) post-mortem photos of both Kinsman and Essen. Oh, no. At this point, he was literally on round-the-clock surveillance with instructions that he should be arrested immediately if observed alone with anyone. 
Yeah. The following day, a young man was seen entering MacArthur's appointment. Apartment. Appointment. At which point, fearing for the young man's life, they apprehended MacArthur. Upon entering the apartment, police found the man restrained to the bed, uninjured. Um, And according to the man later... He had arrived from the Middle East only five years earlier and was married, but but he had not told his family that he was gay. Ah. So, multiple things going on here. One, family didn't know he was gay, which is what a lot of of these victims had in common. Yeah. Um, Two... Because his family didn't know, the name that was used in court was John. Okay. Like, you know, John Doe. Yeah. Uh, He said he had met MacArthur through the dating app Growler and said that they had met for sex several times and he had agreed to keep their relationship secret and even agreed to be handcuffed to the bed frame. This time, however, MacArthur had put a black bag over the man's head, and when the man had managed to get the bag off of his head, MacArthur then tried to tape his mouth shut before the police officers had interrupted. So, thankfully, they interrupted. How lucky that they got the exact moment. Right. That's crazy. John Doe could have been another victim. Yeah. Um, because, because of their search warrant, police pretty much took all of the electronic devices that were in his apartment that day. They seized five cell phones, five computers. Oh three, my god. Yep. Three digital cameras and roughly a dozen USB flash drives. Oh no. Shortly after his arrest, MacArthur was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Wow. Um, which was pretty much Kinsman and Essen. Yeah. While they did not find the bodies of Kinsman and Essen, authorities said that they had a pretty good idea of how they had died. Apparently, on the computers that they seized... There were grisly photos of his victims that he kept as trophies. No. Like, first of all, you dumb. (laughs) If you're leaving photos, but you dumb. I mean, that's fairly often for them to have trophies, but yes, very. I like how in so many podcasts, it's, it's like people saying, how dumb can you get? Like, people criticizing the way that Criticizing murder. the killer, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> by the end of January, authorities were certain that they were dealing with a serial killer who concealed evidence by burying it across the city. Oh, wow. Police then executed search warrants at five properties associated with MacArthur and his landscaping business. Oh. Four in Toronto and one a nine-acre property northeast in Maddock, Ontario. I hope it's Maddock. 
Three of the properties were released back to their owners. However, the property in Leaside that the cadaver dogs had been to once before mm-hmm. was of high interest to the police as well as his own apartment. God, how much more do I have? Jesus. Okay. The search was extended to a nearby ravine, and the cadaver dogs were brought in once again. This time, they were particularly interested in the rather large planter boxes. However, since Mm. it was January in Canada, and of course extremely cold and or snowy, the planters were frozen to the ground and required heaters to thaw them. On January 22nd, one of the planters was wrapped up and taken to the coroner's office. Oh, shit. And about a week later, police announced that they had found the dismembered skeletal remains of at least three people in two of the 12 planter boxes seized from that Leaside property. At least. At least. Look, there's more. The remains were not identified, but the authorities had gathered enough evidence to charge MacArthur MacArthur with three additional accounts of first-degree murder and the presumed deaths of Majid Kaihan Sorush Mohamidi no, Mahmoudi there we go, Mahmoudi and Dean Lissawick so, second white guy this they suspected even more so now that this was a serial killer case in fact Former homicide detective Mark Mendelson said that the investigation would become the largest Toronto has ever undertaken. Needless wow. to say, I condensed this quite a bit. Whew. Yes. Buckle in. The cadaver dogs were brought in again, but because of the cold weather and frozen ground, they were not able to pick up on a whole lot. Then on February 8th, police announced that they had found the remains of three more men and that one of the six remains were those of Andrew Kinsman, who was identified through fingerprints. So what are we at this point? Seven? They have found six bodies um, and they have charged him with I thought they had the bodies of the first two. They did not. They did not. Oh, okay. They just found the blood. That's right. They found the blood, yeah. They found the blood. That's how they charged them with the two. So they're charging him so far with five, possibly six, if these two other bodies belong to Kinsmen, which one of them does, and Essen. Okay. Another place that was investigated was the backyard of that Leaside property. Mm Mm-hmm. On the 19th of January, backtracking a little bit, they brought in tents and heaters in an attempt to thaw the frozen ground that both cadaver dogs and, well, hold on, that both cadaver dogs showed interest in and groundbreaking, and ground-penetrating radar showed something. Oh, okay. So, not only the dogs, but this machine was like look there's something here yeah nearly a month later on february 13th they excavated two sewage lines of the home and a section of one of the lines was removed for testing investigators also spent several hundred hours looking through macarthur's apartment 
They took more than 18,000 photos. Jeez. And collected over 1,800 items because this is where the investigators investigators believed the majority of the murders took place. On February 23rd, police charged MacArthur with the murder of Skandarash Navaratnam, who was identified through his dental records. However, the sixth corpse that they found, they could not identify. Oh, wow. On March 5th, the police held a press conference and released a photo of the victim, asking the public for help in identifying him. It's at this time that they also announced a seventh victim that was found in another of the planters. And this seventh victim was Abdul Bazir Faizi. Fuzzy? Fuzzy? That we did mention earlier. He was one of the missing people. As we so previously discussed, at this point, MacArthur had only been charged in five murders. Only. Only. But all five of them were from both the Project Houston and Project Prism. So, technically, we got the missing people that they knew about. That they knew about. That they knew about. That's the key word. Um, however, even though he was charged with five of the murders, only four of the remains had been found. Cayenne's remains were the only ones that were not. I thought that they found six bodies. They did. They did. Then how could he only be charged with four murders? No, they were, he was charged with five murders. Well, he was charged with six murders. Five of them were in the the task force, the task yeah. forces that they created. Five of them revolved around that. Um, the sixth one, they were looking for who the heck this person was. Okay, I just got thrown off by you saying the four. This whole thing is super confusing. I had a hard time keeping it together as I was writing it. Oh, yeah, you did say there was a lot of uh, stuff at the end that was... Yes. 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 Okay. But anyway, because remember I said that one of the um, remains could not be identified and they were asking Mm -hmm. for people to help identify it. Yeah. My first thought was, well, what about the remains that couldn't be identified? Is it possible those were Kayans? Nope. Right. Nope. So he likely killed at least seven people? On April 16th, it was determined that those remains belonged to Kirushna Kumar Kanagaratnam, who was an asylum seeker who was under a deportation order. However, he had never been reported as missing. Oh. He had last had contact with his family in August of 2015, and police believed that he had been killed between September 3rd and December 14th, 2015. Yeah, so this is now... Well, they've identified seven of the bodies. Yeah. Because um, I know you're wondering, the other one that was not identified as missing was Dean Lisawick. Okay. Because he was homeless. Oh. Yeah. They didn't care about him because he was homeless and he wasn't reported as missing. Yeah. They did find Cayenne's remains, but it only took until July of that year. Between July 4th and 13th, 20 
Police officers spent time excavating the ravine behind the Leaside property and the compost pile. Uh, they apparently found remains every day that week, and on July 20th, they positively identified the remains of Cayenne. Investigators did initially begin to pull up cold cases in the area that were similar to these eight victims, because now mm. there's eight remains. However, they could not connect MacArthur to any of them. What? <clears throat> yeah. Um... I did say right here, if anyone wants to read up on his victims, I highly suggest checking out the Wikipedia page on this. There are some, I mean, they're not really in-depth details, but it's, you know, nice little paragraphs regarding each of the person's disappearances, and I wanted to put it here, but I feel like I'm running out of time. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. Okay. Most of them were people of color. Most of them were, were gay. Most of them were in the closet. Yeah. They did not openly identify as gay. Mm. One of them was a homeless person who, in all reality, was probably doing stuff for money. Well, we know that one of his uh, previous victims was a sex worker. Sex worker. So yeah. that seems to be within his line of... Yeah, the line of everything. Okay, so MacArthur's trial was not supposed to take place. This is how recent it is. It was not supposed to take place until January 6th of 2020. Oh, shit. However, on January 29th, 2019, MacArthur pled guilty to each of the eight first-degree murder charges, which ended the possibility of a fair trial. Crown attorney Mike Cantlin said that each member was either premeditated or involved in other crimes, which qualified them as first-degree murder. Six of them were sexual in nature, and five included confinement. MacArthur kept trophies from his victims, including jewelry and a notebook, and DNA from four of the victims were found in his van. He had hundreds of post-mortem photos of his victims that he tried to delete when the cops were hot on his tail. Thank goodness for forensics, though. That is one of the worst things. Like, other than the fact that he literally killed all of those people. Obviously. The fact that he took the time to take post-mortem pictures of their bodies. That's, yeah, that's just even the worst. That's, uh, mm, nope. Some of the photos would be staged with ropes around their necks or with oh, or with the men nude in a fur coat or hat. What the fuck? Some photos showed the men with their heads and beards shaved, and then he would keep their hair in Ziploc bags in a what shed at the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Cantlin also said that MacArthur sought out and exploited the vulnerabilities in his victims. Mm-hmm. Um, he would lure them with sex and then killed many in his bedroom through ligature and strangulation. One photo that they recovered even showed a rope around one of the victims' necks that was twisted with a metal bar. The same bar that was found in his van in 2017 and had both Kinsman and Essen's DNA on it. Jeez. MacArthur's sentencing hearing began on February 4th, 2019. 
He was sentenced to a 50-year parole ineligibility because of the enormity of the crimes, his lack of remorse, the betrayal of his community, the effect of his crimes on the community, and how he had been a danger up to his arrest. His defense said that this was a little harsh due to his age, which, (laughs) hell no, he deserves every bit of it, but whatever. Absolutely. And more. Fuck. And more. Yeah. But whatever. On February 8th, 2019, Justice McMahon McMahon? sentenced MacArthur to life imprisonment with no parole eligibility for 25 years. He described MacArthur's crimes as pure evil and stated that MacArthur's lack of remorse shows he would have continued killing had he not been apprehended. Absolutely. But... He did take MacArthur's age into consideration and his guilty plea and said that MacArthur would, could apply for parole when he was 91. <laughs> the Toronto Sun noted that MacArthur is overra- overweight and has type 2 diabetes and is unlikely to live that long. So, there's that. Jeez. One thing that is important to mention is that this whole case brought light to the indifference police had towards LGBTQ plus racialized and homeless persons, which I have said time and time again, we are in the fucking 21st century. This should not still be a thing, but you can definitely tell during this investigation and when it went serious was when the white guy disappeared. And not the homeless guy. Not the homeless white guy. The white guy who held a presence. And that's when it mattered to the police. And that's not even when it mattered to police. It didn't matter to them at that point. It didn't matter until the people in the community came forward. But it's also one of these things that a lot of his victims were, like I said, they were in the closet. They were not out to their families. They, like, no one knew that they were with him and they just up and disappeared. So it's kind of one of those things like I can't exactly blame the community because the community probably didn't know either. It, I'm not saying it's all on the community. I'm really not. I'm saying that it's good that the community came forward, but it's unfortunate oh, yeah. that it took the police like that long to actually respond to the stuff that was happening. Yes. Like they had a full task por- force dedicated to three men who went missing that they could place similarities, mm-hmm. and it took them that long. But, yep. That is my story of the 2010 to 2017 Toronto homicides. And I completely hated that story. <laughs> but, you know. Uh, what is your story? My story is the Philip experiment. I don't know that one. I didn't either. <laughs> okay, so... My sources for this story are Wikipedia, livinglibraryblog.com, a YouTube video, uh, liveabout.com, and psi-encyclopedia.spr.ac.uk. Woo! Woof, woof. Woof, well, woof. Right, okay. woof. This entire episode, woof. Woof. <laughs> okay. So the Philip experiment... 
This experiment was conducted in the early 1970s by the Toronto Society for Psychical Research, uh, led by mathematical geneticist Dr. A.R. George Owen, and it was overseen by psychologist Dr. Joel Witten. Ooh. Yes. This study, it was supposed to test um, Dr. Owen's theory that, um, quote, ghosts have an objective, or objective, have an objective reality, but they are created out of the minds of those who see them. End quote. So he's saying they're poltergeists? Basic, kind of. To to like dumb it down. They're saying it's poltergeists. Kind of. Kind of. Basically it was meant to determine whether ghosts or manifestations are real or simply hallucinations created by whoever sees them or gotcha. that people can project their energy unconsciously onto material material objects gotcha gotcha okay yep so the participants of the experiment none of which claim to have psychic powers of any kind by the way were as follows dr owen's wife iris owen former chairperson of mensa in canada margaret sparrows Industrial designer Andy H., his wife Lorne, heating engineer Al Peacock, accountant Bernice Al Peacock. M. I know. I know, uh, it's so great. Sorry, book- Bernice. Bernice M., bookkeeper Dorothy O'Donnell, and a sociology student named Sydney K. Okay, so, keeping their names a little secret here with only lettered last names, but sure. Only I get some it. of them. Okay. There's like. A couple of them have their last names. Yeah. Um, the purpose of the group was to create a fictional character in order to, um, in an attempt to create a ghost and through meditative uh, sittings or seances, see if they could contact this character and receive messages and other physical phenomena, maybe even an apparition. So Topa. Kind, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, Just wanted to make sure. Except in the instance of a tulpa, they can see them. So that's what they're trying to do here, too. To, yeah, to make to make it so that they're visible to the human eye. Yeah. So this character they created was named Philip, hence the experiment name. Mm-hmm. And here is the backstory they gave him. It's very interesting. So, Philip Aylesford, 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 I can't, yeah, was his full name, and he was an aristocratic Englishman born in 1624. He had been a supporter of the king and was a Catholic. Of he course. He had an early military career and was knighted by the age of 16. Oh, he was, Jesus. He, yeah, he was the English Civil War. He was he was the English Civil War. He was in <laughs> He the was the embodiment of uh, the English Civil War. Yeah, he was in the English Civil War and was personal friends with Charles II, working for him as a spy. Oh. Yeah. Apparently he was married to a beautiful but cold and frigid wife, Dorothea, the daughter of a neighboring nobleman. One day, when out riding in the boundaries of his estates, Philip came across a Romani encampment and saw a girl named Margot and Aww. fell instantly in love with her. Aw, he but also brought- he's married. <laughs> yeah. He brought her back secretly to live in the gatehouse near the stables of Diddington Manor, his home. I want to live in Diddington Manor. 
<laughs> Apparently that's a real place. That's one of the one things about the backstory that they created that was real. I'm about to Google Diddington Manor. <laughs> so for some time he kept his love secret, uh-huh. but eventually Dorothea, realizing he was keeping somebody else there, found Margot and accused her of witchcraft and stealing her husband. Philip was too scared of losing his reputation and his possessions to pro- to protest at Margot's trial, and she was convicted of witchcraft and burned at the stake. Oh, no. Philip was stricken with remorse that he had not tried to defend Margot, and, and he finally one day he was found at the bottom of the battlements of Diddington. Um, he had thrown himself off the top in a fit of agony and remorse. Apparently, uh, there are a lot of holes in this story, but I didn't get too yeah. into it because it was yeah. a made-up story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did not find a Diddington Manor. There's a Doddington Hall. I don't know. I just heard that it was real. That's what I read. It might not yeah. be. Who knows? Yeah. So, they met weekly, making up his backstory and having one of them draw portraits of him. And all of this took, like, eight or nine months. Yeah. So, it was that long before phase two of the experiment even started. The experiment overall lasted ten years. Holy go- I would like to be a part of an experiment like that. Um, do you get paid? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) With, um, so now that they had his, uh, life and appearance firmly established in their minds, they- began the second phase of the experiment, which was contact. In September of 1942, the group started gathering to discuss Philip and his life. They would meditate on him and try to visualize um, him as, like, a collective hallucination in more detail. Yeah. They sat in a circle around a table with a drawing of Philip in the center or um, a piece of aluminized cardboard on on the floor instead of the table, which they were hoping would cause Philip to materialize on it? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Some members of the group occasionally claimed that they felt a presence in the room, but there was no real way that they could, like, measure any sort of communication from him with a feeling. So that continued for a year, and during this time, nothing really happened, which is when the group decided to add the practice of table-turning. Table turning. Table turning. Okay. Table turning, also known as table tapping, table tipping, or table tilting. (laughs) Yes. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking of cow tipping. (laughs) No. It's a type of seance in which the participants sit around a table, place their hands on it, and wait for any sort of rotations or any movement at all, really. Uh, It's supposed to serve as a sort of communication Like, the participants would say the alphabet out loud or ask a question, and the supposed spirit was supposed to move the table in some way in in order to spell things out. Okay. Sometimes entire sentences. Similar to, like, a weird Ouija board. Woof. Okay. This is, like, the classic spiritualist seance, basically. They dimmed the lights, sat around the table, sang songs, and surrounded themselves with pictures of the type of castle they imagined Philip would have lived in, as well as some objects oh. from the time period. You mean my room. Okay. 
<laughs> so after about a month, um, so like, this is like a year and a couple months into this experiment, yeah. the table actually began to tremor. Mm. Eventually, it began rocking back and forth, and a knocking sound could be heard when they were sitting around it. Slightly concerning, but okay. The participants told the possible entity to knock once for yes, twice for no, and began asking it questions. The first question was, is this Philip? And he said yes. Is this well, George? He, Hell yeah. That was, that was no, but he, yes. A one anyway. was net. A one, a one was one, yes. One is yes, two one is One is no. yes. Okay. He began answering more questions and described himself exactly how the participants did in, in the whole little biography they made of him, down oh. to the smallest detail, but it didn't stop there. Some members thought uh, they heard whispers in response to questions, but no voice was ever captured on tape. Okay. But Philip also added smaller details about himself and his life that hadn't been created by the group. So... The issue with this is, this is where... So, some of the things he told them weren't historically accurate for the time that he was okay. supposed to be alive. Mm-hmm. But he did seem to exhibit a sort of personality... Like, showing his likes and dislikes, uh, strong views on different subjects and stuff. Made, and he would... I, I you know, see that going real well. Yeah. And <laughs> it was supposed to be um, made obvious by, like, how enthusiastic or hesitant his knocks were. Mm-hmm. There were even times it was said that he would tap along to songs or the knocking would sound like laughter after somebody had told a joke. Or the knocking would sound like after. Yeah. So the group remained aware that they had created Philip, but came to treat him as a member of the group. Well, yeah. They would they would greet him each session and he would knock on the table un- yeah. like under each individual person's hand. It's Wait, important to under know- under each person's hand, like he would give every person a knock, like, yes. "Hey, how you doing?" So like third hey, hands would be doing? on the table, hey, how you he doing? would Knock. Under each person's I would, hand. I would hate that. <laughs> so, it's important to know that some, uh, it's said mm. that this was a really controlled experiment, okay. but some experts disagree on it. It's a whole thing. The participants were said, it was said that they were frisked to make sure nothing went in with them before they got started. Mm-hmm. Um, but weird stuff Happened. happening. Yeah. At this point, the table itself was doing weird things. It began to move when no one was touching it. There was even an instance of it getting stuck in the doorway, like it was trying to leave the room. It was Wait, believe- the yeah. table? Yes. The table? Yes. Okay. The table so, was trying to leave the room? Obviously, they. it was thought Philip was the one moving it. The table but, was just noping out of there. Like, nope. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Philip could even manipulate electricity. When he was asked, he could make lights flicker or even dim. On one occasion, they placed a piece of candy on the table, which tilted to a 45-degree angle without falling. And when mm-hmm. they tilted the table themselves, it just fell in a normal way. Mm-hmm. Each participant was asked to knock on the table in order to 
try to match the knocking heard during the seances with theirs, but yeah, none of them It matched. couldn't match, yeah. Yeah. Apparently the knocks, supposedly produced by Philip, didn't vibrate as long as any of the knocks produced by the other, like, participants. That's weird. This, a lot of this is actually recorded and later captured on film. Mm. And no matter how they moved the table, all of the strange activity continued. I repeat myself, that is weird. It's very weird. And after feeling, sometimes they w- there would be a cool breeze that blew across the table, and afterwards they would ask Philip if he could cause it to stop and start at will. He could, and he did. Of course. The group noticed that the table itself felt different to the touch whenever Philip was present, saying that it would have a sort of subtle electric or even alive sort of feeling to it. I'm so glad you said that, because I was like, how? How does it feel different? On a few occasions, um, a mist formed over the center of the table. A mist? Yeah, I don't know. But the group also reported the table would sometimes be so animated that it would rush over to meet them, or even trap members in the corner of the room. So the table's a dog. Apparently. We're just in Beauty and the Beast land here. That's, that's okay. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's it's how to make real life Beauty and the Beast happen. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> it was found that the uh, these phenomena would occur with as few as four members present. And during the summer of 1974, when the group took a brief break from the weekly meetings, some of the members experienced poltergeist phenomena in their own homes. I believe it. There was a seance conducted before a live audience of 50 people at one point. The session was also filmed as part of a television documentary, which I watched a video of this. Yeah. How'd it go? It was really surprising. Like, all of the camera angles at first, it looked like somebody was picking up one side of the table when it was tilting. But Mm -hmm. then it moved around, it showed the different angles, and showed that it couldn't possibly... Because you could see everybody's hands and the way that it moved. And it was moving in really random ways around the room. It couldn't be some sort of technological device or anything anything like that. So besides table wrappings, there were other noises around the room and obviously the lights. The group uh, actually got a full levitation of the table during the, the seance with 50 people. Concerning. It, it only rose about half an inch above the floor, but oh, everybody in the room saw it. Yeah, that's not bad then. Unfortunately, the dim lighting prevented the levitation from being captured on the film in this instance. But in the video that I saw, I think there was a point where it was. Okay. I was so, going to say, of course. Yeah. Of course course. So Philip's knocks were recorded and translated into sound charts by Dr. Alan Gold of the Society for Psychical Research in England, showing that they had a different acoustic quality than normally created knocks. Mm -hmm. The force behind the table motions could be really powerful, and there was a group of physicists and psychologists who were invited to um, a to the group Ugh. 
to, to the group. invited the group to Cleveland, Ohio for a demonstration. One physicist sat on the table and was thrown off pretty violently. The nature of the force yes. generating the motion it they couldn't recreate it and it they weren't sure how it even happened. But they couldn't get Philip to materialize. To be fair, like, that is all, hard. Ever. That is hard. Yeah. Well, the experiment was later replicated with a completely different group of people and a completely different character. Multiple, actually. Mm-hmm. After only five weeks, the new group established contact with their new ghost, Lilith. She was a French-Canadian girl who became a member of the French Resistance in World War II and was captured and shot as a spy. Watch me name my child Lilith. (laughs) There were similar experiments which conjured up entities such as Sebastian, a medieval alchemist, and Axel, a man from the future. There was one named Humphrey, but I couldn't find anything on that one. A lot of them were completely fictional and... But they all produced unexplained communication through unique knocking noises. Mm -hmm. Okay, but Axel from the future, what did he tell them about the future? Anything? Nothing that I could find. Boo. God damn it, Axel. A Sydney, Australia... A Sydney, Australia group attempted a similar test with the Skippy experiment. Six participants created a story of Skippy Cartman, a 14-year-old Australian girl... The group reports that Skippy communicated with them through raps and scratching sounds, often in a sassy way. And I don't understand how your responses can be snappy, or sassy words are hard. That is sassy. So, to me, the fact that Philip was part of the participants' imaginations was kind of obvious, like you said, with the tulpa. Um, Yeah. And although he could sometimes accurately answer questions about events and people of his time period it didn't appear to be information that the group was unware of uh-huh. it, so it, it, i mean that part it, so it could yeah. have been a participant or multiple participants in the group doing these things somehow but it could be one of the participants unknowingly doing these things with rspk or if we're going along with what the experiment was trying to prove, it could be that the group together was able to create a psychokinetic phenomena without any of them being naturally gifted. Mm, gotcha. Who mm, knows? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, okay. Because watching the video, there are some things that I I don't really know. I, I don't know. Where'd you find the video? I will send it to you. Okay. There are... It's two different things. It's part of a, like, miniature documentary, so um, there are some parts that are, like, reenacted, and then there are other parts that are the actual videos. Video, yeah. So you'll have to just kind of differentiate between them. Okay. So. Can do. Overseeing psychologist Joel Witten concluded that the effects were produced by participants as a subconscious defense mechanism causing their behavior to regress to a childlike mentality. So, basically... But, but why'd it be a defense mechanism? Well, okay, so by consciously attempting to be childlike through playful behavior, it said that they sort of... Re- the members regress to a childlike view 
of okay. reality so, that lacks knowledge of the laws of physics. So it was simply like, if I want it to happen, it will. Uh, if that makes sense. Okay. okay, yep, it does. Okay. So some people say that they tapped into something that was actually a demon or a playful spirit that took the opportunity of these seances to act as Philip and produce the extraordinary psychokinetic psychokinetic phenomena that was recorded. Yeah. But I don't know. Zuzu. Actually, no. Let's not. Don't say that word on this podcast. He who must not be named. But yeah, a lot of it does sound like a tulpa. Tulpa. Everything's a tulpa. Everything's a tulpa. (laughs) We discussed this on so many episodes. I am actually so glad that you um, went over the tulpa in the, what was it, Slenderman episode? Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you went over it because it's so relevant. To everything that we do. Everything. In uh, one podcast that I listen to, they make fun of everything that they do, and they're like, oh, it's probably just infrasound. (laughs) (laughs) That's all everything is. Well, no, like... Everything I knew about Tulpa's one was from Supernatural, which is right, completely inaccurate. Yeah, Yeah. very inaccurate. Um, But also, it's very inaccurate. But also, it's at the very same time very accurate. Like you make it up yourself. Yeah. So, and that's I mean that's kind of what they did. That's about it. Yeah. But But, (laughs) what do you think it is, Rachel? It it has to be something that I made because I'm still of the mindset that Tulpas are poltergeist. Because a poltergeist is something that you make up yourself. But alternately, well, but are poltergeists tulpas? I don't, I don't think and so. Are, because when you have a tulpa, you have a clear idea of a person. Whereas when it comes to a poltergeist, that's a, like subconscious uh, but, psychokinetic energy from one person. There's no other person involved. But what if it is your subconscious creating a person to deal with what you have to deal with? Which is what, I mean, from my understanding, a tulpa, you can create it for imagining. For imaginary? Similar to imaginary friend. friend. Yeah. Yeah, but, But when it comes to tulpas, they can't affect the outside world generally. Valid points. Valid points. So then, at this point, if you're thinking about it like that, then it would be a poltergeist because poltergeist, a poltergeist, poltergeist, a poltergeist would be able to rap on the table like you were saying they did, but right. a tulpa would not. Right, and it's it's hard to differentiate when you're talking about a poltergeist versus just like RSPK because yeah. there's basically the same thing but in this case none of them had any sort of psychic psychokinetic abilities yeah yeah so it's interesting it's this is a very interesting case and i think i want to look into it more myself yeah here let me like send send me yeah send me your video and i'll look into some of the links whenever i get a chance okay are you done with your story Yeah, that was it Cool. Well, I really, really enjoyed that. And I, like I said, I'm going to have to look into that more on my own because that just yeah, is super like, interesting. Yeah, and I think I looked through, I pulled a U and looked at multiple pages of Google for this because all of there the weren't Google pages. <laughs> a lot of sources that had 
differing information or more than a certain amount of information. So, or reliable yeah. information. So, I mean, I get it. Um, <coughs> yes, if you are like me and want to look it at, look it out, look it up, please do because I'm sure this is going to pull a lot more up than what. We yeah, and honestly, found. look up. Um, oh, I don't know about that. I literally looked Send up us. everything. I think I it, I well, yeah. added everything, but it, just look up. Send us anything yeah. we could not find. Uh, if you look up <laughs> the Philip experiment you, on YouTube, the video will show up. It's right there. Awesome. I look forward All to watching right. it. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Miss and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Miss Misfortune. Or you can just search for us using the full name, Miss and Misfortunes. We pop up. You can also send us an email to MythsandMisfortunes at gmail.com. Fun coincidence, our website is MythsandMisfortunes.com. Please check us out. Yes, <laughs> please visit it. Like... Give me a reason to work on the website. <laughs> As if she needs more things to work on, but yes, do it. Okay. Uh, our theme music <laughs> was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. Please go look them up. They are very, very talented at what they do. Yes, they are, and we appreciate them so much for helping us get started. Yes. Um, and also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe please. It is so important. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. I mean, you can't rate on Spotify, but listen to us. That yes. gets us somewhere. Listen. Um, yes. And speaking of listening, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yes. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.